Thank you for tuning into this webinar, Thieves Within Part 2, Powerful Fraud Prevention Tools for Small Business. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speakers are Cindy McSwain and Jandria Blumenhurst. Cindy leads Employer Solutions Outsourcing Services Group. Prior to directing the group, Cindy served AGH's audit clients for 10 years, working with a wide range of middle market, closely held, and family-owned clients. Cindy's clients cross over many industry sectors, including manufacturing, distribution, restaurants, retailers, healthcare, and not-for-profit. Jandria serves as a financial and accounting consultant for AGH's Outsourcing Services Group. She helps clients with a broad range of accounting and consulting services, including monthly financial closeout, assistance during peak workloads or special projects, training new accounting personnel, internal control reviews and assistance with departmentalizing financials and cost allocations. Prior to joining AGH, she worked in private industry positions where she was responsible for monthly financial statements, payroll, management reports, development of internal control procedures, and monthly closing procedures. While no business is immune to fraud, small businesses can be more vulnerable because they may lack the personnel or resources to put sophisticated technology in place or to separate duties appropriately. However, the most important ways to help prevent fraud don't require major expenditures, an understanding of the basic principles and role of proper internal controls and a strong ethical culture. Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to this webinar today. Uh, this is actually a subject that's near and dear to both my heart and Jandria's heart. As over our years as CPAs, we've seen way too many small and medium-sized businesses, and large ones at that, um, victimized by fraud within um, the confines of their own walls. It's because of this that we've actually developed this passion to educate others about what can happen and what businesses need to pay attention to so that hopefully it doesn't happen inside your organization. This is actually the second part in a two-part series. Um, we're going to start with a brief overview from part one, which was actually a higher level overview of fraud, what it is and why it happens. Uh, today we're actually going to dig deeper into specific fraud schemes and specific internal controls and including those for smaller businesses. So here are some of our objectives for today. Uh, we're going to reiterate some thoughts about fraud, why it happens, discuss some of the more common fraud schemes used, and then those specific uh, controls. And, and I want to remind you, it's not a matter of if fraud will occur in your workplace. It's more a matter of when and what and how much damage is going to be incurred. So let's get started. Uh, so I always like to start with defining what it is that we're talking about. And so this slide shows how the ACFE defines occupational fraud, and that's the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, which is the leading organization on this topic. So in other words, um, what this is saying is an employee is going to actually make life better for themselves by deliberately, as in knowingly and willingly they mean to do it, they're going to misuse their, uh, the assets of their employer. Now that might sound kind of rough, but in a nutshell, that's exactly what it is. So let's cover some startling fraud statistics. The typical organization in the ACFE studies uh, lost 5% of their annual revenues to fraud each and every year. Now that's not 5% of the bottom line, that's 5% of the top line, the sales or the revenue line. And for many companies, especially, especially those companies or organizations with narrow profit margins, that's going to mean the difference between a profit and a loss in any given year. The median loss 
caused by the frauds in the study was $145,000. And additionally, 22% of the cases involved losses of at least a million dollars or more. Now let's talk about duration and time frame. The median duration in this study, that is the amount of time from when the fraud commenced or began until when it was actually detected, is 18 months. That's a year and a half, and that's just the median. I've seen them go as long as 7, 10, 15 uh, years. It just depends, you know, kind of how long somebody's able to get away with it. And obviously, the longer that a fraud occurs, the higher the amount of loss. Now, the stats here, uh, they, they don't really surprise me uh, because in my 20 years plus as an accountant and consultant, I've seen um, organizations affected over and over again. So some more statistics. It takes a lot of time and effort and money uh, to recover the money stolen by perpetrators. So many organizations uh, just aren't ever able to fully do so. At the time of the survey, 58% of victim organizations hadn't recovered any, none, zip, zero, zilch, um, of their losses to fraud. And only 14% had made a full recovery. And like I said, sometimes it's so difficult and expensive to prosecute that I've seen many business owners just give up uh, as it took too much, a time, too much attention and time away from taking care of their business. And I've also seen the suspected fraudsters leave the company or be terminated from the company just to move to a similar position within the same town and in one case just down the street about three doors to probably do it all over again. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Jandria and she's going to walk us through some of the more common fraud schemes that are out there. All right. Thanks, Cindy. Um, so there are many different kinds of uh, frauds schemes, um, but these are some of the most commonly occurring ones. Um, these are the ones that we're going to talk about today. Uh, there are numerous schemes listed for each area. However, we're only going to highlight one or two per slide. We just wanted to make sure that you have the information available to you at a later time to, to consider each one. Additionally, you'll see that many of these schemes overlap areas such as cash and receivables. So we're going to start with cash. There are many ways that cash is taken or manipulated so the employee can keep it. Um, this slide and the next will show some of the most common ways this is done. You can see that in most cases the cash is received and the cash that's recorded are different. And I have an example of the first one where items are sold for cash but the sale isn't recorded. I had a client that was a college and the bookkeeper was responsible for collecting the cash for the books and then issuing a receipt to the student so they could pick up their books on the first day of class. When the student paid with cash, sometimes she would keep the cash, then falsify the receipt to make it appear that the student had returned the receipt to get a refund. So she would staple and rubber band and tape the day's receipts together so others in the office couldn't easily get in to see that she didn't have the correct paperwork for the refund. And when I went in to investigate, I undid all of that and found that the paperwork was incomplete. Um, this slide just shows the way cash receipts are manipulated. Now we're going to look at some on the cash payment side. Um, so as I said, this is more from an accounts payable side. Um, I have a couple of examples I want to mention in this area. The first is a small shop that had a single office person, and she would write a handwritten check to herself and go and cash it. But when she entered it into the accounting records, she would record it as a normal vendor for expenses. 
And the second example is an accounts payable clerk who would accidentally double pay certain vendor invoices. And then when the vendor would call and say they had a overpaid and had a credit on their account, she would just have them write a check back and then she would take it and cash it. In both of these cases, the employee cashed checks that were made out to the company. And one way for companies to stop this would be to instruct the bank not to cash checks made out to the company. It's also important to note that not all fraud involves stealing cash or another asset. Um, oftentimes it involves manipulating financial statements to present a more favorable picture, uh, perhaps for the bank or for bonuses that are calculated based on financial results. Or maybe they need to look a little worse to save on those taxes. Uh, perhaps it's to hide something else that's going on. So the revenue can be recorded for the wrong amount in the wrong period or incorrectly recorded altogether. So as I said, usually it involves revenues being um, manipulated somehow. So, you know, we can um, maybe ship things and have things not recorded or recorded things and have them not shipped. Um, we can take orders from customers with poor credit and um, then maybe write them off in the future. Uh, or we can have orders accepted at terms other than those established by management. Lapping is another one that we've seen on several occasions here at AGH. That's the last one on this slide. This is where an employee pockets the cash received from a customer. We'll call him customer A. And they don't record it because um, they've taken it. So it's not on the books. And so when a check comes in from customer B, the fraudster applies that amount received against customer A's account instead of the customer B account. And then customer C's payment is applied against customer B's account and so on. And so as more and more hard cash is siphoned off, the scheme becomes more and more difficult to keep up with. And in most cases, the fraudster has to maintain a side ledger to keep it all straight. Eventually, this results in a house of cards and it eventually falls. So some tips here on how to um, mitigate fraud from an accounts payable side. Um, make sure that all purchases are authorized. Um, also, make sure that purchases are recorded uh, only when the items are received um, or the services and not, you know, just things that are going to happen perhaps or not valid invoices. Sometimes a liability is incurred but it isn't recorded. Uh, maybe it's recorded later or the purchase amount is incurred. Uh, recorded um, incorrectly. Um, I guess in this case really what I'm trying to say is only pay from valid invoices from the vendor. Don't take a sticky note or just a little hand scratch thing uh, to pay a deposit to someone because you never know if that's just somebody's buddy and that deposit really isn't going to be for work that's done later. Um, sometimes purchases are recorded incorrectly um, to the wrong account or at other than favorable terms or it's misclassified uh, to conceal lack of authorization. I have an example of this misclassified one. Um, I was on an audit several years ago and we do a procedure where we look at the checks that were written in January and February to make sure that the invoices are recorded in the right time period. Either they're recorded in December or they're recorded in January based on when the service or the product was um, received. And what we found was a very large invoice for office supplies. And we're talking a lot of office supplies, like $10,000 worth of, of supplies, like sticky notes and highlighters and that kind of thing. And what we found was um, it was recorded in the wrong year. It was in January, but they got the items back in December. And what we found was that a person 
um, in the office. We don't know if we meant for them on purpose or uh, by accident, but got uh, talked into buying $10,000 worth of office supplies. We don't know, maybe she was going to try to sell them herself and make a profit or if it was truly just a mistake. But instead of going to management and saying, hey, I messed up, she hit the invoice and thought, well, I'll wait until after year end and I'll slip it in and they'll never find it. The problem was we did find it. And when we went to the controller and said, hey, this is recorded in the wrong year, she goes, what are we doing buying $10,000 worth of office supplies? Needless to say, at the end of the audit, that person was fired. So um, again, here are some on the accounts payable side, um, employees uh, don't record a contingent liabilities, uh, maybe there's kickbacks uh, paid by vendors um, or purchase discounts are taken. Uh, the one about employees concealing unauthorized purchases for their own benefit, um, I do have an example of that as well. I had a client who had one person who got all the invoices and paid all the checks and did the own uh, bank reconciliation and nobody really monitored what she was doing. Well, come to find out, she figured out who the landscaper was for the business and started using that own landscaper herself. And not only did she get her landscaping done, but over the course of um, a year, she had an in-ground pool built and all of the invoices went directly to the company and the company paid those because there was no oversight there. Um, they eventually found it, uh, but it um, was difficult to prove because she had shredded all the invoices. So obviously somebody was not looking at the uh, date or the, the invoice and the address on the invoice, and probably nobody was looking at that at all. So I am going to give it back to Cindy so she can talk about some other areas where there are fraud. Gosh, it'd be kind of nice to have a, an, an entire landscaped backyard uh, and pool paid for on the company. Um, not really, just kidding. Um, so let's move into property and equipment. Um, you know, many times fraud schemes in this area, they have a financial statement impact, but they don't necessarily involve the theft of an asset. Uh, the decision to capitalize or an expense um, a piece of equipment or the decision on how to depreciate that property and equipment, both of those can have a significant impact on both the balance sheet and the income statement and they can actually be manipulated to achieve desired but falsely reported results. Now, so, you know, what do we care? Well, if bonuses for anybody in the organization are based on the bottom line results, this can easily be an area that's manipulated by those with access to the general ledger, and then they can sometimes manipulate their own bonus. I've actually seen this um, before, and bonuses based on the bottom line are a bad idea for anybody that's in a financial position. So don't do it. Um, and so, you know, do you have capitalization policies in place and are they being appropriately followed? Are all appropriate costs either being included or excluded um, from that capitalized cost? Is someone actually appropriately reviewing the asset listing on an annual basis to determine if there's any impairment that might be needed or if an asset needs to be removed? And is somebody spot checking to make sure all assets that are listed are actually on physically on the company property and being used by the company or you know maybe did they walk out the door somewhere in the payroll area and this is one that's near and dear to my heart as well since we run a uh, payroll service bureau here at AGH but you know the biggest one that I see is you know the stealing of time or the stealing of pay um, and and that's you know people are um, padding their time cards or clocking in early and then going and reading the newspaper until it's actually time to start working. Um, 
you know, stealing pay. I had a client once that's in the uh, publishing industry, and so uh, they, they do mailers. And so they actually pay by the piece. They have like a base, a base pay and then um, an extra incentive by, by the number of pieces that get stuffed and mailed. So the, the new employees in that area would get, let's say, 10 cents per piece, and the, the supervisors in that area would get 20 cents per piece. So there's a pay differential in there um, you know, for experience. Um, this was a, a case of where there were some layoffs, and involved in those layoffs were some of the people who were responsible for reviewing those employees' timesheets. And so that function kind of got lost in, in the layoff process. So now these employees were turning in their own timesheets straight to the payroll um, processor. It was an in, they were doing their payroll in-house, but it got turned in straight to the person who was ultimately doing it. She was under the impression that you know somebody had actually approved those piece rates and, and the number of pieces, but these employees figured it out. And so they uh, would change their piece rate. They could put in any number of pieces down that they want because nobody was actually reviewing it. And they changed their piece rate from $0.10 cents to $0.20 cents because they knew somebody else was getting paid that. So they were manipulating their own paycheck because that function, that control, that review process got lost. Um, you know, so therefore, while no one was reviewing or approving, um, and, and they got away with it for a period of time until somebody finally stepped in and said, well, why are all the people getting paid $0.20 cents a piece? Um, you know, there's unauthorized work, work not performed is actually crude, um, and sometimes we have collusion and things like that if we're, um, you know, over accruing or giving employee benefits or, or not recording vacation time when maybe it needed to be reported. Uh, another big area that I see is ghost employees or fictitious employees, and that's where uh, somebody, a name, um, a fake employee gets put onto the payroll and they don't really work there. Now this has to be somebody, you know, working it from the inside, uh, but I've seen it a number of times. And, you know, perhaps it's a relative or perhaps it's a, a fake name or perhaps it's a friend, you know. And, and so if somebody's not paying close attention um, to the actual names that are on that payroll register, that can slip through. Um, you know, somebody who has the ability to authorize an employee advance and then make that advance to an employee and then also has their hands into the general ledger where they can simply write that off. And so again, that might be collusion going on, um, but I've seen that happen inside of businesses as well. So those are some of the more common fraud schemes uh, that I think we've, we've seen in the businesses that we deal with. And there's a ton more out there, but um, we wanted to highlight those. So let's talk about why an employee might commit fraud. Um, in simple terms, it's because the environment that they work in is, is right. So to begin this explanation, I'm going to use what's called the fraud triangle, and many of you have probably seen this before, um, so I'll go quickly. When all three factors in this fraud triangle are present, it creates an environment right for fraud. So the first leg is financial pressure. This is when an employee is experiencing some type of hardship. Maybe their family has experienced a layoff or salary cuts or mounting costs due to uh, college, disaster, medical tragedies, or medical bills in general. Um, or maybe when managers feel the pressure to show financial results internally. The second leg of the triangle is opportunity. Fraud opportunity increases when layoffs leave fewer people responsible for internal controls, like in the example I gave about the piece rate. Opportunity is rampant 
in the very smallest of organizations where owners have, you know, maybe a single employee that they trust with absolutely everything. And we actually see this factor a lot. I know a guy who uh, was running a small construction company, um, and he entrusted virtually all of his finances to one individual. He trusted her, liked her, been around for a long time. He got ripped off not once, not twice, but actually three times. After the first time, we actually laid out multiple suggestions about how to segregate um, and distribute some of the responsibilities so that that one person wouldn't have control over everything. He replaced that person, but he didn't implement any of the recommendations, and it happened all over again. Now, the third time wasn't actually from a financial standpoint. Rather, it, this involved a salesperson who walked off with all of his clientele. And this resulted from a lack of non-compete agreements, lack of confidentiality agreements. Um, so he got ripped off financially. He got ripped off from all of his financial or from all of his clientele, which you know pretty much pulled the rug out from underneath of him. Um, and so you know that's that's a good example of someone who really needs to segregate out some of those responsibilities. The third leg of the triangle is rationalization. And this is the one I have the hardest time understanding. And I, most um, ethical people out there, I think, have a hard time understanding this one. Um, but it does happen. This is the mentality of, I deserve it. Rationalization uh, might occur if fewer employees have to work more hours, maybe if they feel poorly compensated, or if they're resentful for some reason. And then they, they, they get it in their mind, and they normalize those feelings that they feel justified committing the fraud, and so they don't have guilt um, with it. Over time, um, you know, it, it just builds and it normalizes more and more, and they think that the company really just kind of owes it to them so that it's, it's okay to do it. When all three of these factors are present, the financial pressure, opportunity, and rationalization, the risk of internal fraud increases. This is, I need it and I can do it without anybody knowing, and besides, I deserve it. You can kind of see, you know, where that might lead somebody to. Organizations simply cannot afford to ignore the potential for fraud within your own walls, any size of organization, from the very smallest to the very largest. Two critical factors to consider in the mitigation and prevention of internal fraud, internal fraud are management's roles, and internal controls. So let's begin with management's role, which is actually the most important tool in fraud prevention and mitigation. Without management's oversight and leadership, everything else is pretty much a moot point. Every organization's culture is based on the tone at the top, and it does. It really starts with the very top leader in the organization. First and foremost, our owners, our leaders, our management must create and emulate a culture in which expectations are clear, that workplace misconduct is not tolerated, and that ethical behavior is expected and is the norm. When this kind of a culture exists, the risk of fraud is actually lowered. So how do we create such a culture? Here are some actions to consider. Um, create, disseminate, and train on an organizational code of conduct. You can actually Google. Um, Google is my friend. You can actually Google code of conduct out there, and it'll give it'll pop up some responses with um, ideas of what types of things should be in a code of conduct. It's important to incorporate ethical standards in you know everything, everything that we do. 
um, here at AGH, we actually um, incorporate them into our performance evaluations as well, so that uh, we're, we're talking about them on a, on a constant basis. It's also really important to have two-way communication from the top down and from the bottom up. So discussion of ethics and leadership presentations um, and in, in all employee communications, management has to constantly be talking about that. But it's also vital that employees have a way to have communication as well. The ACFE says the, the number one way that perpetrators get caught is by a colleague, by somebody ratting them out, basically. Now, sometimes it happens that they will just actually go and tell somebody, but an important mechanism to have is a confidential way for them to do that, confidential, anonymous, etc. Um, so implementation of a confidential employee communication channel, sometimes that's called a fraud hotline, um, uh, a suggestion box, uh, I, I, I've heard them call them a gazillion different things. But it gives that employee an anonymous outlet um, to report workplace misconduct or offer suggestions. So the one that we use here at AGH is called Our Workplace, and you can find that out online as well. You know, now secondly, management is ultimately responsible for the implementation and oversight of all internal controls. Uh, it's necessary to periodically review controls to ensure that they're appropriate and that they're still working as desired. I think that that needs to be done on at least an annual basis or annual plus any time that there's significant turnover, significant reorganization, just to make sure that you're not um, changing uh, the controls that were in place by moving people around. Management's also responsible uh, for ensuring that their employees are following those controls that have been set into place. So let's discuss some specific internal controls. Uh, but before we do that, again, let's do some definitions. What, what do we really mean by the term internal controls? These are actions that are designed to minimize the potential for misstatement, misconduct, or even just errors. So to properly segregate duties, an organization needs to split these three financial responsibilities among three completely different employees. So authorization. You have to have an individual that is able to authorize transactions. Who is the person that says uh, that it's okay to purchase something or to pay a vendor or that the underlying inventory has actually been received? You know, does, does your organization use a purchase order system so that, so that those authorizations are tracked? Secondly, you need a separate person to actually record those transactions. Now that's going to be the individual that has their fingers all over the general ledger and is able to post transactions or able to edit things. And sometimes you want those to be different people as well, who can record, who can edit, or who can record in certain areas of the general ledger. The last area that we need to have segregated is the individual that actually has custody over the related assets. Most likely this is cash. So when not cash, that would be who has the right to sign a check, who has the right to be into the bank account online and be able to initiate wires, transactions, transfers, um, ACHs, direct deposits, things like that. Who has the ability to use a credit card? Um, who controls, if we're talking non-cash, who controls the property and equipment? Who has the access over that? Who has, um, in manufacturing companies, who has the uh, 
the right to access the inventory stockpile. You know, is it behind a locked cage? Is it behind? Uh, is it in a secure location? Now, sufficient sufficient staff isn't available um, in those smaller organizations. You can use an accountant or a third party can actually provide some, but not all the checks and balances. You know, and then there's other compensating control methods that can actually be implemented, and and sometimes that's you know after the fact transaction. Reviews. I don't recommend those, but if it's the only thing you have, um, but use them soon. <laughs> don't wait, you know, a month, six months, um, to go back and review things because that's when that uh, the the median length of the perpetrated fraud can actually happen. So, what does this look like if if we have fewer and fewer people who are doing things? These, you know, this is a, a Venn diagram from your elementary school days. But as we bring those circles together and um, overlap, that center area is where we really have the danger, where we actually start mixing um, the individuals that have the rights to all those different areas. And in the smallest of organizations, sometimes we start to look like this, and so the entire financial process is a big danger sign. So the best scenario is no, lap, no overlap whatsoever, and I know this is difficult, but you know, the, the goal is to get as close to this as possible. And in those really small businesses, this is going to mean that that owner is going to have to cover one or more of the, the actions and have to put in a little more effort and work in this area as opposed to uh, what they're, you know, you know, the sales area or the operations area. So at this time, um, I'm going to let Jandria jump into some specific controls, and then we will get wrapped up. Thanks. All right. Well, as you can see on this slide, it says cash is king, and according to the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, they say that 90% of all fraud involves asset misappropriation, and within that category, 85% involves the theft or misuse of cash. And that includes paper and electronic forms, um, as well as actual cash. Uh, so it's the number one asset at risk in any business, as opposed to the non-cash items such as inventory equipment. So we're going to spend a little bit of time here talking about what to do to uh, help cover cash. So there, I've listed on this slide several things that you can do. Um, and as laser printers and blank check stock have become more easily available, almost anyone can alter or counterfeit a check. The changes, some changes in the Uniform Commercial Code back in the 90s um, state that banks may not be liable when Fred, Fred check fraud occurs, um, it says under the standards uh, of ordinary care under the UCC, banks are considered less liable if the customer does not take necessary precautions to prevent fraud. So what steps can the small business take um, if not already employed to protect your company against uh, check fraud losses? One is to consider using positive pay, and that is where you upload a file to your bank that shows the check number and the amount, and when a check is presented for payment, the bank checks the number and the amount to the file. So if it isn't a valid check number or the amount is different, the bank won't clear it. So that keeps people from altering a check or washing checks. Uh, also keep your blank check stock, your return checks, and all check copies lock, locked up. And if you keep, if you utilize pre-numbered check stock where it's already pre-printed on your check, make sure you have a method for accounting of all the check numbers. Um, also evaluate the use of using check stock with security features. And that's where you see like watermarks or backgrounds with multiple patterns or colors, a special ink that can be read under ultraviolet light, and the use of the void marks uh, when photocopied. 
um, you're going to hear me say this next thing uh, more than once today, but reconcile bank statements promptly. Um, the bank statements and the canceled checks and all of the things that come with the bank statement should be initially received and opened by a person responsible uh, for a responsible person other than the employees maintaining the cash records. Um, everything should be reviewed before they're forwarded to the person doing the bank rec and unusual items need to be followed up uh, during the review. Uh, unusual items noted during the view, review should be investigated promptly. Also consider using direct deposit for your employees or using pay cards. Uh, this greatly reduces the number of company check floating around and fewer uh, that they can alter. And then you may just want to talk to your bank. Uh, have a meeting with your banker and discuss things that you can do to help prevent check fraud. Uh, they're more than happy to talk to you and they have multiple services and this will help in your due diligence um, for that necessary precautions that we talked about for the UCC. So I'm going to um, say this again, uh, and this, this is um, things to do without necessarily impairing your efficiency. But again, mail should be opened by an employee not responsible for the accounting records. Um, when money comes in, a person should prepare a listing and triplicate of all cash receipts. Uh, copies of the cash receipt listings should be distributed to the accounting department for posting. Um, a copy go to the controller so they can compare it to the authenticated deposit slip. Um, that comes back from the bank, and then one copy needs to be retained by the preparer. I have one business owner that does that herself. Uh, she opens all of her mail. She makes note of what checks have come in. She has someone prepare the deposit. Then she gets the deposit back and takes it to the bank herself, and that way she feels comfortable that everything's being deposited. Um, also, restrictively endorse your checks for deposit only to account, and then have your account number on that stamp. That way they cannot be cashed by someone. Cash receipts should be deposited intact and daily. Don't hold cash receipts for a weekly deposit or when you get enough money. Uh, this just exposes the company to loss. Once again, bank statements should be initially received and opened by a responsible person other than the people maintaining the cash records. Signed checks should not be returned to the employees responsible for the accounts payable processing or the cash dispersing functions. Checks should be prepared for mailing and then mailed by an employee independent of those functions. And that way, if a fraudulent check or a fraudulent vendor is in there, it's a little easier to find because they can't just take that check and put it in their purse or in their in their uh, billfold or whatever they need. And then also, journal entry should be an, approved by an employee other than the preparer of the entry. I had a client one time who was doing cash advances to an employee which was herself, and then having someone write them off. And uh, anyway, it wasn't found because nobody was approving her journal entries. So what about the really small business? This, these are companies like Cindy showed in the diagram where you've just got one or two people that are doing everything, and so those areas overlap. And there's just not enough people to do, and I hear this all the time. I can't hire 20 people to do all these things that you say to segregate all of my duties. Well, as a small business owner, it's your money, and so uh, these things should be done many times by the business owners. So uh, once again, you're going to hear me say this, receive the bank statements unopened and look them over. Uh, or another option is to get online access to the bank accounts and look at them every couple of days. See what checks are going through. Make sure they're ones that you've signed. Look at those signature lines. Also look at wires out. Um, as we discussed, it's not always checks. It could be somebody's wiring money, 
And if there's not a second approval needed by you or someone you trust, then uh, you could be losing money that way. So uh, it's, it seems like a little tedious, but you should want to know where your money's going. And then uh, this is another one I'm repeating, but have bank statements reconciled promptly. Um, there's nothing worse than catching up on bank statements and then finding out that there was a problem. Uh, so have them done just within a few days of getting that bank statement. And then have someone review the bank, stick, bank reconciliations themselves. Look for old outstanding items or weird things on the reconciliation you don't understand. Um, this wasn't necessarily fraud, but I had a client once whose controller was worried about cash flow, so he just didn't remit the payroll taxes. But he was doing the journal entry on the general ledger that made it look like he was doing it. And since the amounts weren't actually going out of the bank account, they were being listed as outstanding on the, on the monthly bank reconciliation. The problem was that no one ever reviewed the monthly bank reconciliation, and it didn't come to light until the IRS showed up um, wanting to put a lien on the owner and the president's personal property for nearly $800,000. The president said he saw the amounts on the financials. Uh, he just never bothered to make sure they were actually clearing the bank. And then once again, open your own mail. Own mail. Um, I had a client who was getting IRS notices, but nobody knew that except for the person who wasn't making the IRS payments. So she was just shredding them. And once again, IRS showed up. So that was not that was not a fun day at that business. So um, once again, uh, sign your own checks. I think the rubber stamp needs to go out the window. Don't pre-sign it. If you're going to be out of town, you should sign all checks all the time. And then review supporting documentation for those disbursements. So when you get a check to sign, there should be an invoice attached. There should be something behind that check that supports why that check is being written. Again, we're back to the no little sticky note thing to just write a check. Um, and this just lets your employees know that you're looking at stuff and you're not going to just let things go by and just sign checks blindly. So, um, you know, it seems kind of burdensome to do all this, uh, but once again, it's your money and you really don't want to lose that 5% of your revenue because that's a huge burden. And now going on to some other areas, um, review your monthly um, accounts receivable and accounts payable reports. Um, if you have an accounts receivable account that you know is paying, they're a good customer, you know they pay, um, and you see their aging getting quite old, it would seem um, as though maybe something is going on with that. Maybe there is some of this lapping or kiting or something being done in accounts receivable that's not appropriate. So look at that. And same thing with payables. If you don't know what a vendor is, you need to ask about it because maybe it's not a real vendor. Make sure you know uh, and approve about all write-offs in accounts receivable and any credit memorandums. This is an easy way to hide adjustments. Somebody pockets the money and then writes up a, a credit memo um, that that's not appropriate. So um, it's just too easy for the employee to pocket cash and then write it off. And then this is another one that's uh, kind of a little soapbox for me, but don't run your personal expenses through your business. Um, I realize that from an accounting and tax standpoint, if it's a um, sole proprietorship, that you can just treat those as owner distributions. But this just creates an environment ripe for a trusted employee to mimic the personal expenses for their own use without the owner being aware of it. Um, I had a client one time who had one person who did all the accounting, and she felt that the owner's wife had the Dillard's card and the Visa card sent to the business to pay as, long, as, long, as, as well as his mortgage and some other things. 
And so she just happened to get a Dillard's card and a Visa card from the same place. And so when the owner saw uh, those checks going out the door, he just assumed they were his wife's. And she had a nice little wardrobe uh, at, from Dillard's by the time they were done because the company was paying for all of her clothes. So. And in the payroll area, uh, you need to approve and monitor changes to payroll. Um, check the list of employees being paid. Make sure you know who they are and that a fake or a terminated employee hasn't been slipped into the payroll. One great way to do this is to hand out the advices yourself. Get that stack of checks when you sign them if you still are doing checks and walk around and pass them out yourself. If you have a check in your hand, that means you may have a problem. I mean, that person may be on vacation, but still. Um, and if you use direct deposit or pay cards like I suggested earlier, make sure you look at that listing. Um, but they should still get a, a, a voucher of some kind. So look that over and make sure you know who everybody is. Um, and then uh, review the monthly financial statements. Um, I have a lot of faith in my business owners that I work with. But if I hand them financial statements and they go, this just doesn't seem right. Something's going on because I had a better month than that or I had a worse month than that. You know, I put a lot of stock in that because they are in that business every day. And so... Uh, I really look into it, and I'm going to tell you 99% of the time that they're right. Um, so if if you get a set of financial statements and they just don't make sense to what you know is going on, ask. Uh, maybe that's where you find you know these write-offs happening or or something to that effect. So, um, and then I'm just going to say have a questioning attitude. Uh, don't accept answers that don't make sense, and in, and be sure to investigate and question further until you're satisfied. Um, a lot of times fraudsters leave a confusing trail. Um, they don't really answer your questions or they make a lot of adjustments and eventually the business owner just gets tired of asking and it's like, oh, I just don't get this accounting thing. Um, but this is exactly what they're looking for. You know, they just want to make it difficult enough that the business owner is just not going to look at it. Um, the other thing I've seen pulled is the you don't trust me card. You know, they play on your feelings. They, uh, you know, think make you think that they're trustworthy and you're questioning that and so you don't question any further and that's exactly what they're looking for as well um, you know if they really aren't doing anything they should be okay with you looking further so don't fall for that um, they just want you to feel guilty so you don't ask any more questions and now I am going to turn it over to Cindy for uh, wrapping this up you know Jandria as you were talking about you know she has talked about bank statements, bank statements, bank statements over and over again. But how many times, Jandria, in our business have we gotten called out to a customer or a client who has said, embarrassingly, and, and so I'm going to tell you, don't ever be embarrassed about this. Just get it fixed. Um, can you guys come out and help clean up our mess? Um, either haven't had the, the right people in there that have had the aptitude to be able to do it or you know they just haven't had time themselves. And we go in and find that you know bank statements either have never been reconciled since the inception of the business, or at least not for the last two years. Jandra, do do you agree with that? That we've all, seen all that the time. time. <laughs> yeah, all the time. Oh, just so, last week I was on one. So yes, frequently. Yeah, and, and again I said don't be embarrassed by that. You know, let's just get it fixed. So if that's your if that's your current scenario, you know, get somebody in there to help do that um, because. You know, and a lot of times we don't actually find fraud when we go into those situations, but it, it again leads the, it, if a perpetrator knows that the owner or somebody's not even reconciling the bank statements, they're going, wow, that gives me that opportunity. Which brings me back to this close here. Um, you know, I want to remind you of two graphics that should always be in the forefront of your mind, uh, and that's going to be the fraud triangle here and the, the segregation of duties. 
So remember that this fraud triangle represents an environment that's ripe for fraud when all three sections exist. Financial pressure, something's going on, I need it. Um, the rationalization, which is the I deserve it anyway, and then that opportunity, you know, where, where an individual has the ability to do it without anybody really knowing. The second graphic then is, is this one on the segregation of duties. Um, remember that, you know, somebody who's authorizing those transactions needs to be different from the person who is recording those transactions in the general ledger and making edits needs to be different from the third person who actually has custody, that person who has the ability to sign checks or the person who has, is holding on the credit card or is a, you know, is an authorized user of the credit card um, or that person who uh, controls that inventory stockpile. So just kind of a reminder overall. Back to, um, you know, a recap of today. We talked about fraud at a very high level and some of the statistics that I'm hoping scared everybody a little bit. Uh, we dug into some common fraud schemes that we've seen and that um, people are doing out there and then uh, tried to dig into some of those internal controls that uh, can help mitigate that. So in closing here, I want to remind everybody that everybody on the team plays a part, you know, and again, that's from top to bottom. So if we all team together like this team of fish here, we can, you know, we can be bigger and badder and, and get, the, get the perpetrator um, not necessarily the perpetrator, but to, to minimize the risk of fraud that's in an organization. And again, remember, it's not if it's going to happen, it's going to. It's just a matter of, you know, what, how, for how long, and how much is going to be a loss to your organization. So make sure you put those controls in place to, to take care of that. So again, I want to thank you guys on behalf of both Jandri and myself uh, for attending today and hope you got some, uh, at least some ideas out of this webinar to, to take back into your organization. It's